Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer Speaks Resource website and blog. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss, which came from my mother's 30-year journey with, with memory loss. Not quite sure what that was. For those of you who are new, I have to apologize because something is going on here, and I'm not quite sure what. So, excuse me there, a little complication. Okay, I'm going to try that again. (laughs) Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website and blog. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss. And my passion really came from my journey with my mom of 30 years, and she is now in her end stages of the disease. For those of you who are new to the show, I just want to give you a brief introduction to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. Rick Phelps, our channel expert, I'm hoping will be able to join us a little later in the show, but I do have an absolutely fabulous guest for you today, and I'm so excited to introduce Joe Skillian. Joe is an author of a book, and I just love the title of his book. It's called Confessions of a Caregiver, When Alzheimer's Comes to Your Home. Joe was born and raised in a Catholic family in San Francisco and then went on to college in four years of postgraduate school. He studied a lot of philosophy and psych. He is um, married with three children who are all in their 40s, and he now lives in Atlanta. He has a marketing and consulting business which emphasizes on manufacturers of dental equipment and material, and his hobbies are public speaking and writing, and he has a fabulous way of putting um, words to paper. His book, um, you know, I I don't go too gaga on too many books, but Joe's book was so simply stated and beautifully put with all the ups and downs that are reflected in the journey of memory loss. And then he goes on to provide some tools in terms of coping, which I just thought was so, so beautiful. Uh, I want to read just a little bit of his introduction because I think that will give you a little flavor of what is to come here in the next hour or so. His introduction says in the book, sometimes I feel like screaming in frustration. Other times I say that's just the way it is. You take care of your family, you love, and you do it with a generous heart and a certain amount of joy. You'll see the negative and the sad and the frustrating, but you'll also see the positive, the love, the hope, and the reward. It's as if someone picked you up or picked up the magnify, uh, um, ah, a magnificent kaleidoscope off my desk and painted several of the brilliant pieces of glass, a black mat. The darkness is there, no doubt. But so are the many beautiful reds, yellows, greens, blues, and oranges. And he just writes 
um, so so beautifully. So, Joe, I just I have to welcome you to the show because, like I said, your book really touched me, and I have been on this journey 30 years with my mom. So, thank you so much for coming to the show. How are well, you? You're welcome, Lori. I, I appreciate the invitation. Uh, like I told you, I, I'm excited about this because I want people that are dealing with not just Alzheimer's, but a, a some kind of disease, sickness, uh, inability that keeps a loved one at home. And if you have to care for that person every single day, it's difficult, and, and I want people that are in that state or will be in that state to understand, number one, it's going to be very difficult, and I try to spell out why and how it's difficult, but I also want them to know there's hope. I mean, you're going to get through this. There, there are things you can do to make it uh, relatively easy on a day-to-day basis. You, you'll be okay, and you need to know that. And that's why I wrote the book, and that's why I'm happy to be here on this program. I appreciate the invitation. Well, thank you. Can you give us just a little background um, on how you are, are and have been touched by Alzheimer's disease? You know, what, what got you to write the book? Uh, what, what got me to write the book, basically... Uh, it, it happened. I mean, I, I didn't sit down one day and say, I'm going to write a book. Um, years ago, probably at this point, I'd say 12 years ago, we decided to take my mother-in-law here into our own home to live. It was obviously uh, a problem that she was having with her mind and certainly her memory. Uh, and we just decided, let's take her in here and have her live with us. And that was that was a good decision. Uh, but after a while, things started happening that, uh, you know, your life changes. And one day, I was just frustrated and probably angry. And I've always enjoyed writing. Uh, my dad taught me how to write when I was a little kid. I've just always enjoyed it. So I came down to my office. I work out of the house. I came down to my office, and I just sat down, and I put something like one page expressing my frustrations on a computer, printed it out, read it, said, whoa, I guess I really am frustrated. And I put that aside. And then probably two or three months later, I had similar feelings. I came down, wrote something into the computer, printed it out, read it, put that aside. And after a couple of years, I noticed well, I, I have a whole pile of papers here that I've written. And I started going through them, and I thought, you know, I should probably share these with my wife. It's it's her mother that we're taking care of. So anyhow, we went to dinner, and I pulled out a couple of these papers, individual papers at dinner, and her reaction was really strong. Number one, she said, oh, I, I didn't know you really felt that way. And number two, she made comments like, whoa, talk about frustration, if I gave her the paper that I wrote about frustration. She, she connected with what I was writing. And then I shared a couple of those papers with another person, a friend of mine who's not involved in such a situation. And her response was, oh, you ought to put these together in a book. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. 
And, you know, I just thought it was an idea and let it go. And after a couple of years, I thought, you know, I should put them together in a book so that people can be prepared if they end up in the same situation that I put myself in when I said, let's have mom come and live with us. So, it, it, you know, like I said, I didn't sit down to write a book. I just wrote things because I wanted to get them out there, probably off my own chest. And it was a way to externalize what I was holding inside. And, you know, after a while, I had a bunch of these individual pages. And from there, it kind of became a book. And, and that's how it got there. Well, interesting. I, I know for me, I find writing so healing. Yeah, it's just a way to be able to release my emotions instead of stuffing them. And I, I also found it really interesting when you said your wife had no idea because we're so good at covering, you know, <laughs> and, and and playing the image of, you know, well, that, that wouldn't be really kosher if I let somebody know I was feeling like that because this is what we're supposed to do. But but it is natural to, to flow through these feelings, and, and we have to be able to vent them honestly. I, otherwise, I think it can do so much damage to the body when we stuff things and people end up getting ill and sick themselves, and, you know, that doesn't do anybody any good. And, and the person with memory loss is probably, you know, just as frustrated on the other side. And, you know, if Rick was here, I'm sure he could he could talk to that, but... You know, we probably, as caregivers, you know, drive him nuts, um, or family and friends, just with our comments and and things. So I think it's both sides um, that are feeling that. Right. Can you, can you right. Tell and, people- and, and one of the things I noticed, and I put this in the forward, Laurie, uh, that you alluded to earlier, I. Um, I didn't write a book about Alzheimer's, and I did not write a book about my mother-in-law. As as I indicated earlier, I wrote this book about my feelings. And number one, guys don't normally get in touch with their feelings. Number two, if they do, they hardly ever write about them. Uh, And, you know, it's not macho. And um, number three, I thought, well... If if I can give somebody a clue of how their life is going to be, at least I can prepare for it, and and that's what I wanted to do. So so the book is about me, but it's for you. Oh, and it it, it just hits the realm of things. Can you tell people how you structured the book? Because I, I I love the way it flows. Um, it, it's very uniquely done, and I think it's just done superbly. Um, the the way I structured it was to, first of all, talk about my feelings. And I divided them into negative feelings and positive feelings. And I deliberately did not want to use the word bad feelings because feelings are never bad. Feelings are fear. There are some negative ones, like I write about resentment sadness, frustration, Uh, you know, those are negative feelings, but they're not bad. Feelings are always fair, and it's what you do with your feeling that might lead to something bad, you know, uh, you're angry at your child, so you just really hit your child hard. That's not good. The anger is neither good nor bad, so 
you got to understand that feelings are feelings. They are what they are in themselves. They're neither good nor bad. And you need to admit that you have negative feelings. I mean, if you feel resentment, okay, you feel resentment. So what are you going to do about it? But the feeling of resentment is good. So anyhow, I divided feelings into uh, negative feelings, positive feelings, and obviously the positive ones were certainly love, a sense of duty, a sense of helpfulness. So after I did the feelings, which I guess was the primary reason I wanted to put this book out there so you'd know what feelings to expect, I went into my observations about Alzheimer's in the body of my mother-in-law. And then, uh, you know, I talked to what I thought is the worst part, which I call the dailiness, D-A-I-L-Y-N-E-S-S, that dailiness of taking care of somebody. I mean, it is difficult. You can do anything for a day. You can do anything for a week. You can do anything for two years if somebody said, hey, at the end of two years, you're free. It's all over. But you have no clue. You have to be there every day, seven days a week, no vacation. If you're taking care of somebody in your home, it's the dailiness that's going to get to you. So I, I thought I should really write a little bit about that. And then I said, okay, um, I did some things that helped me get through day by day. And they are all categorized under how I cope. And I have eight coping mechanisms. So I start with my feelings. Then I talk about my observations. Then I go to how I cope with this. And then I got a little personal, talked about, you know, my fear of getting Alzheimer's, uh, what I want if I do, um, and then talked about the rewards. And the last thing I talk about, and to me, this is the smallest part of the book, but the most important, is there hope? The answer, yes, definitively. There is hope. There is hope. And to me, that's the most important message. So that's kind of the structure. Wonderful. Now, you also put in, um, you know, some prayers and, and affirmations, and you've got some some tools for people to really discover what it is they're feeling. Um, and, I, and I thought those were just wonderful exercises and so helpful because one of the things in terms of dealing with any um, – chronic illness uh, like Alzheimer's disease is that lack of control that we feel because as a society we seem to you know really put that on a pedestal that we're supposed to be in control of, of every you know everything before us dotting the I's crossing the T's and you know living up to everyone's standards and we forget about just being in the moment and enjoying what's before us because we're always venturing out to what it's supposed to look like. And there's so much judgment, I think, that clouds um, clouds the path on Alzheimer's disease. Do you, do you feel that way at all, Joe, in terms of um, being, you know, being judged by others or, you know, having to appear a certain way or be dutiful? Did, did that come into play for you at all? Oh, well, I'm 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 kind of obnoxiously unique. <laughs> I am what I am what I am, and and if people don't particularly like that, you know, I don't care. I mean, uh, Penny Penny is my wife. Penny and I 
um, you know, we'd go to dinner or something, and you know, at uh, let's say 8:30, uh, I, you know, we'd say, okay, we we have to go home, and uh, we have to leave now because we have to let the babysitter go home. And people look at us like we're absolutely nuts. Obviously, we don't have little kids at home. I mean, I'm 75 years old, so. Uh, you know, we don't look like we have little kids and therefore need a babysitter. But, you know, we we had a duty uh, to go home and let the caretaker, every now and then we have somebody come in so we could take a break, uh, we'd, we'd get this caretaker uh, back home who she had been watching uh, mom while we went to dinner at a neighbor's or something. So the whole thing about, oh, yeah, Joe and Penny and their babysitter, <laughs> it was kind of a joke. But, uh, yeah, we, we had a sense of duty to mom to take care of her, but we also had a sense of taking care of self. And I think that is so important. Um, and, and that's why we would get away every now and then to go to dinner, not as often as we wanted. Uh, and And that was a lot of the frustration. But... Um, yeah, you, you, you need a sense of yourself as well as a sense of love and duty. And, and toward that sense of self, I want to mention two things. I just jotted these down as you were talking, Laurie. Something that you said uh, triggered them in my mind. For anybody in your audience, that for everybody in your audience that's listening, uh, if there are two things that you need to do if you're taking care of somebody at home all the time, number one you have to go get help, and it's there. You can get help. You must go get help. Otherwise, you're going to kill yourself. You're going to get worse than sick. You're going to die much younger than you would normally from the stress and the anxiety and uh, all that that goes with this constant caretaking. Uh, you need to get help, number one. Don't be a hero. You can't do it all by yourself. Get help. Number two, get away every now and then. You have to get away every now and then. As I put it in the book, I, I made myself get away so I could come back in and do a better job. You have to get away. And it doesn't have to be a long time. It doesn't have to be you know anything extravagant. Uh, I happen to live... Oh, five minutes by car from a PetSmart, and they board dogs every day. And I love dogs. We have three of them. So I just get in the car, run up to PetSmart, go over and look at the dogs. God knows I don't need another dog. We have three of them. <laughs> and I just look at the dogs and smile and think, aren't they wonderful? And don't they make people happy? And I get back in my car, you know, after no more than three minutes in PetSmart. I get back in my car, drive home, and I'd be a new person. You, you need to get help, and you need to get away. I, I agree. I I didn't do that initially um, when I was caring for my mom and my dad. And I was such a lost soul. I was so busy doing so much, but I yeah. I, I didn't know who I was anymore. Right. And and nothing was filling my soul, and my eyes actually got pitch black. And my eyes are beautiful; well, they change colors between blue and green now, and have this wonderful sparkle back. But I mean, it was amazing physically 
the change. And then, you know, my body, I ended up having you know, asthma and acid reflux. And, and after I got in balance, woof, all that stuff went away. So you, you got all those stress disorders. Yeah, you have to. You do have to take care of yourself. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I I didn't think that I had time to do that. And I didn't place value on that because I just looked at my to-do list and staying in control. And I had no idea how drained I was getting until after uh, one day I ended up meeting with my girlfriends for coffee. And we laughed and we cried and I, I squeezed them in. They had bugged me for months to go. I've told this story before, but it was so rejuvenating for me. And from that day forward, Every week we got together for like two hours. When when before I couldn't even squeeze in 15 minutes to a half an hour, I realized the value of taking care of myself and getting filled and getting away. And so I, I commend you that, that you were able to do that. I, I also like that, you know, it doesn't have to be any big whoop-de-doo thing. It could be just going to watch something that you enjoy or going for a walk or reading a book in private or working out or whatever your thing is, there's no right or wrong. It's just what what fills your heart and your soul and brings you that joy and and will re-energize you. And That's right. And and those two words are I think what are important: heart and soul. Uh, it, it's not primarily about your body. Your body is going to get the short end if you do not take care of your heart and soul. But if you take care of your body without taking care of your heart and soul, you're not doing yourself any good. I mean, you are more your heart and soul than you are your body. That's what you have to go fix. That's what you have to go nourish. That's what you have to rejuvenate every day, your heart and soul, and they will take care of your body. So, and I love that you said that because that goes both ways. So when, I, when I'm when i dealing with my mom, who is now a prisoner of this shell of a body because, you know, she is pretty much bedridden or wheelchair bound, can't feed herself. She can't do anything really for herself at all. But I can still feed her heart and her soul. And I can still at moments get that connection with her. It makes no difference what vessel she's in you know there's still that ability to communicate on a different level and train ourselves to look for different things and i think that that's a critical mistake in society that we don't teach that starting at a very young age because to me that point i just found that as being it's been life-changing for me totally totally life-changing mm-hmm now, can you share with us, you had said in the book, you know, one of your chapters is on what you've observed. Do you want to give us some specific insights into some of your observations? I don't want you to give away the whole book and stuff, but your book is just, like I said, I, I just absolutely loved it. It just it touched me in so many ways. Um, I just think it's fabulous. And I think your observations are just right on point um, and so simply stated and noted where it's easy to understand and it's easy to relate to, mm-hmm. not complicated. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things that I observed early on 
was basically, you know, just just change. And I, I didn't relate it necessarily to a serious mental problem or even physically a brain problem. I mean, to me, uh, it, it was just a real sign of some major change. Um, my my mother-in-law uh, was always... Uh, she always laughed. She was always upbeat. She uh, always enjoyed a good time. She and her husband, you know, they used to uh, go to parties, have parties. I mean, they, you know, they just they just enjoyed life. And one of her favorite songs, and I've never heard it from anyone but her, is called "Oh You Nasty Man." I mean, it sounds like <laughs> something out of Broadway. <laughs> so she would start singing this, and. Uh, you know, at the drop of a hat, and I mean that—that that was her. So, one day, uh, my wife and two of my girls, you know, they—they they all used to sing "Oh, You Nasty Man" with my mother-in-law. The, the four of them would get together and they'd do it, and uh, they had a little dance routine. So, anyhow, uh, Penny said, "Come on, Mom," and said to the girls, uh, "Let's sing 'Oh, You Nasty Man,'" and they all get up and. Mom just stood there like she had never heard this before. She stood there like she didn't know she was supposed to sing or dance. I mean, it was just total absence coming from her mind. And, you know, that was the first very obvious uh, change. It, it was a single event, but it was very large. Um, so maybe then it triggered me to look for some other things. And again, it, it, they weren't things other people would notice, but we noticed them. Um, we got up from dinner one evening, and Mom was always a stickler for um, you know, proper manners and all this sort of stuff. And when you finish dinner, um, you, somewhat, you, you fold your napkin if you're going to come back. Uh, but if you're in a restaurant, you just put it neatly aside. So I guess she liked our food because she fold her napkins. She coming <laughs> back for dinner tomorrow night. So anyhow, they, she uh, she got up and she just left the table and left her napkin there. And I figured, hey, woman, where are your manners? You know, I didn't say anything, but I noticed. Well, that's unusual. And the next night, she did the same thing. She just got up from table and went over to watch TV and. You know, a little thing, but to her, it was part of her. It was a big thing. So, you know, habits and um, uh, certain values you start to notice are leaving. They're going away. They're they're not what they used to be. Uh, and and she would always say thank you when dinner was over, and she stopped saying thank you. So between just dumping the napkin on the chair and not saying thank you. Uh, at the end of dinner, just walking away, I thought, oh, there's something going on here. And then, you know, we started noticing more and more forgetting. Uh, we noticed indifference, uh, things she wanted to do. Oh, uh, I, I'm not interested. Uh, let's go to the store. Let's go to Macy's and get you a new dress. No, nah, I'm not interested. Well, I mean, 
coming from her, if you knew that woman, that's a shocker. <laughs> for her to say she did not want a new dress, or even worse, new shoes, impossible. I mean, this gal made Amanda Martin, uh, what was the one in uh, the Philippines? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It yeah, made, made her look like somebody that could make it to a Walmart once a year. I mean, this gal, she just <laughs> loves shoes, got shoes, you know. Um, and then it started into the physical uh, deterioration. Uh, and again, it's just very, very slow. Um, little, little less able to do things physically. Um, you know, you used to just think, well, this is old age, uh, but it, it, it was a, it was an unknown, but the observation was she's definitely slowing down, and uh, you you just you just see it, it. It's like every day her soul was cut in half. I mean, it never went away all at once, but every day it was cut in half. So, you know, the next day, yeah, there was some still there, but that kind of got cut in half by the end of the day. And the next day, you know, it's very gradual over time, but it's real, it's diminishing, you can observe it, and it's, it's, it's not nice. It's not nice. How did you, do you have any observations of how family and friends dealt with things? And, and you know, it's, I, I always find it really interesting how everybody reacts or doesn't to the disease. If they're in denial or if they start to accept it or, you know, do they fall into sadness or are they trying to push this bucket list to get everything done um, yeah. quickly? Any thoughts on that that you'd like to share? Well, my observation was that the kids were terrific. And by the kids, I mean we, we have three children you know, in their 40s. We have uh, three grandchildren. And they were all great because we were great. Uh, they, they just took it in stride, and it was part of daily life now. Uh, they treated mom uh, with as much love as they always had. They were very comfortable with her, uh, especially the grandchildren. They they were probably even more nice to her <laughs> uh, when they realized she was having some problems. We told them, to, you know, no, be nice to mom and you know, help her out, uh, like the littlest one. Every time she came to the house, she'd go get uh, some kind of bottle of uh, goop uh, lotion. <laughs> and, you know, she'd start uh, rubbing her hands or rubbing her feet. and You know, it was her little way of making mom feel good. So the, the family was fine, all the family. There was nobody in the family that had any difficulty in dealing with this. Um, our really good friends, and you will find out who are your really good friends and who are not, the really good friends, they would sit with mom when they came over here, like we invite them over for dinner, uh, they'd come and they'd sit with her and they'd try to engage her in a conversation. And they make a real effort. Uh, we had some 
people we thought were really good friends. We invited them over for dinner. And, I mean, once they went and said hello and left, you know, went over to, you know, pour a drink or something, they didn't make any effort at all to acknowledge her, to talk with her, you know, whatever. And that's probably two things. In fairness to them, it might be their own, you know, just scared. I don't know what to do with this. But, you know, if they were really as good friends as I thought they were, they should have tried to stumble through, and it probably would have been stumbling, uh, but they should have tried to stumble through engaging this woman that they knew for years. Uh, and just because she's different, you don't ignore her, but they ignored her. And that made me angry. Yeah, that's, that's hard to watch. I had, um, in dealing with my folks, my dad with his, <clears throat> his brain cancer, my mom with her Alzheimer's. I mean, they had friends of 60 years that just didn't know how to interact. But one of the things that I also found, and I have to blame myself, was that I was hiding a lot of what was going on. And so they had no idea um, how severe some of the situations were. And so I would get upset when they would, you know, invite them to go travel and do different things going, what are they thinking? You know, can't they see this? But but I hit it. You know, I was part of the cover-up. And I think as caregivers, we also have to explain how to interact because most yeah. people are so fearful. Yes. And especially with good friends, I mean, if, if it's their personal friends, um, they are so nervous. And, and I think the question comes up, I could be next, you know, and and what's going to happen? And so it's, it's kind of like a – well, Dr. Richard Taylor said – now, I can tell by the way somebody hugs me if they're going to stay in my life or not. Or if, uh-huh. they're, say, if they're hugging me, hello and goodbye at the same time because uh, of, the, of the nonverbals. And, you know, Richard is still in his um, early stages of dementia, still goes around speaking. But it's, it's so true that our, not only our verbals, but our nonverbals are so powerful and and the person with dementia can still pick up on all of those things, even though we might think that they're not able to. Um, in my belief is they can still take that in. They might not be able to respond the way they used to, um, mm-hmm. but they can still feel it. And I think, again, it gets back to that heart and soul level. So I think we have to be really cautious of what we say and what we do around a person to make sure that it's respectful and dignified to them. But then, again, teaching people options of how to engage. I love that, was it your granddaughter or your daughter that used the lotion? With yes, granddaughter. Mm-hmm. You know, because, you know, they want to help out. They want, they're no different. Every stage of life, we all want purpose in life. And, you know, a child, they just really, especially the young ones, they don't have any ego, so they don't, they don't see any right or wrong. Everything's not black and white. It, it just is. And, yes. and they just want to help. And it would be so nice if as adults we could get back to that stage of just being. Yeah, and, and you know, you mentioned uh, uh, about hiding what was going on. And you're right. I mean, some of that, therefore, it, it's it's our fault that, you know, my friends didn't, 
treat her right because but you know i i don't think with them we were hiding it but there, there were some other people we hit it which which makes me want to comment on the word guilt mm-hmm. for some crazy reason uh, you know we we manufacture guilt for so many events in our lives and guilt is the most stupid useless thing in the world it does no good for anybody i mean it hides truth it kills love it annihilates hope i mean how worse can something be guilt is completely useless and negative and besides that it it literally will end up killing you but anyhow for some reason you know we feel guilty about how mom is looking or acting or so we don't want People to know, geez, she's got you know mental problems or Alzheimer's or all. Well, that's nothing to be guilty about. But we tend to, you know, want to be guilty about it. Now, you know, I I can I can laugh at the old um, image of Catholic guilt because I was raised in a very Catholic family in a very Catholic community, San Francisco. Believe it or not, way back then was very Catholic. It's God knows it's far from it now, but <laughs> but uh, yeah. but uh, guilt is just just useless. So you know, again, for your listeners, Lori, if if any of you are dealing with this, and I suspect you are because that's probably why you're listening to this show. If you're dealing with Alzheimer's, examine your own self and see if there's any guilt hanging around any aspect of this. And if there is, just get rid of it. And and the best way to get rid of guilt is by admitting. You admit. You know, I admit my mom is sick. I admit my mom is really sick. I admit my mom sometimes is going to act like an absolute buffoon. I admit my mom might embarrass me. I, I just admit that stuff. And, and there's no guilt to it. You just admit it. And then you've got to turn on yourself. I admit that I hate her sickness. I I admit that her sickness puts extra burdens on me. I admit, and, and look, uh, this is not in context, so it's going to sound worse than it is, but I write about it in the book a little more clearly. It's okay to admit when you're in the middle of some frustrating activity with your sick mother-in-law or child or whatever. It's okay to feel, honestly feel, right now, oh, I hate her. You know, most people are so shocked at that. But again, feelings are fair. It's what you do with that feeling that may be good or bad. But, it, you know, you can be in such a tangle of frustration, resentment, anger, and hassle that you, you do feel like you hate her at this moment. So what do you do? You say, okay, I'm going to nourish that hate. No, that's bad. But if you say, uh, yeah, but I need to get beyond that and realize I also love her and then act on the love, then you're good. But but don't hide, 
honest emotions. Admit them. I, I and that'll that, help you get way beyond guilt. I think that's great advice because I'm a firm believer that you have to feel the emotion to get through it. Yes. And so if you don't bring it to light, if you don't really embrace it and acknowledge that that's what you're feeling, then it's just going to sit and bubble inside you and you're going to keep adding to it. And then pretty soon that's when people explode and things get out of control. And, and like you said, feelings aren't good or bad. They just are. And I think one of the things is, is acknowledging why we're feeling the guilt. Is it because others are judging us? and we're feeling guilty, maybe we said no, and we should have said yes in our mind, because no in society isn't always an acceptable word, um, which it is. Um, or is it our inner critic beating ourselves up? Because I know for me, I, I do pretty good with everybody else and standing my ground, um, and what I, what I feel is right and wrong, and what I'm going to do um, nowadays. <laughs> you know, I've, I've gone through a lot of lessons on that. Um, and I'm not trying to please everybody like I used to, but I still really, really struggle with my inner critic coming and beating me up, you know, kind of that dual personality in my head going, oh, you schmuck, Lori, <laughs> why did you do that? Yeah. And so yeah. I, I think it's important for people to understand where that feeling is coming from. Is it self-induced or is it coming from others? Because a lot of times, we worry about things that are never going to happen. And and we feel guilty and we, we feel, well, we feel all the whole realm of emotions because of worry over something yes. we don't have control over or something that's in the future. And that, that is something, too, that I've learned on this journey and has been a gift to me is to worry less. Not that I don't have my moments, and then when I do, I really go down that path, you know, and I embrace them to the hills, and, but then I'm able to let them go and not dwell on it, you know, for, for a lifetime, which I think is important, too, but it's, it's a difficult process. Now, in the book, you have some exercises, um, and if I'm not mistaken, I think those kind of help people figure out their feelings. Can you talk True. about those a little? Um, yeah, I, I, I sort of did that in two parts. I, I did the uh, eight uh, techniques that I used to get through all this. And then when it was all done, I figured, well, that's fine. You know, these work for Joe Skillen, but what about me, the reader? And I put in a couple of work pages where you can figure out your own plan that's going to help you get through this day by day by day. And I mean, you know, if you if you're in a situation where you need help, you can read the book. There'll be a lot of help there. But you certainly need, after you read the book, you need to go back and fill out your own plan for what you're going to do to get through this. Um, yeah, you know, some of the simple things I did were uh, recognize I have to balance. I, I have to balance my sense of uh, my sense of duty uh, with my sense of uh, ease. I, you know, I, I don't want to take care of my mother-in-law. I don't want to do that. But on the other hand, I, I have a sense of duty. You take care of family, and you need to balance those. And to balance it, you don't just say it one day. You have to think about it. And it, it, redo it every now and then, that balance. 
admitting is the same. You know, I, I talked about that already. Uh, I pray. I prayed all my life. Um, I believe in God. Um, I, I don't believe in a Catholic God or a Christian God or a Jewish God or a Buddhist God. I mean, God's bigger than anything we'll ever figure out, so he's bigger than all those put together. But I believe in him. And uh, pardon me, I shouldn't say him. Maybe that <laughs> might be a her. <laughs> I, I believe in God, and, and I believe, okay, this is going to get a little preachy. I believe that God is present to me. Uh, one of the things in the Gospels that I find fascinating, because for years I looked at it from the wrong point of view. Uh, one day Jesus was talking about the birds of the air, how they don't fall to the ground without the Father knowing it. And I always figured, that's really cool. God's even taken care of the little birds of the air. How, how wonderful. Certainly he's going to take care of me. And then one day I grew up and stopped being selfish, and I realized, no, that that's not that's only half the story, and maybe not the more important part of the story. The more important part of the story is that Jesus said he's not going to let the birds of the air fall to the ground without taking notice. So he's not saying everything's going to be wonderful. He's saying, hey, the birds are going to fall to the ground. The birds are going to die. Some cat's going to come and kill that bird. But that's okay. God is present and sees it and knows it. And because he loves us, we'll make it better. Yeah. Well, and none of us are going to live forever. I mean, we're all going to exit this world at some time. And I think it is a comfort. I know for me in this experience, I'm like you. I believe in kind of God and the universe as a whole, and I, I my spirituality has gone through the roof on this path, um, and it, I think it saved me in terms of knowing I'm not alone, knowing that there is a lesson. And for me, I would always look at when I when I would get really frustrated or really angry or upset or whatever. Um, when I just I wanted things to be different, I learned to stop and say, what's the lesson, Lori? What's the lesson? You know, you're, you're not put here to be miserable. Look deeper. There is a lesson. And, and it's never failed me that there hasn't been a lesson to learn. If I would just kind of shut up, slow down, stop feeling sorry for myself, and go, what's the point? Yeah. And and the point was always so brilliant and yet so simple. Yes. Yeah, it is simple. And and that's the funny thing about prayer. You talk about listening. Most people uh, think prayer, oh, i got to talk to God. But prayer is as much listening as it is talking. In fact, perhaps more listening than talking. And, you know, whether you believe in God or not, the listening is very, very important, and some, somehow, some insight will come when you listen. And, and look, I certainly know a lot of people that never believed in God until they got into a situation like this. And it, it's not sort of much, sort of, uh, it's, it's not so much that 
they see God now just as a lifesaver thrown into their ocean. But they they realize, yeah, you know, life's bigger than me. Life's bigger than me and my kid that I have to take care of every day, even though he's 31 years old. Uh, life's bigger than me, and it's bigger than me and my kid. And, you know, when I really start thinking about this, it's bigger than me and my kid and my neighborhood and today and you know, you just keep going going farther and further and you realize suddenly, yeah, there's there's something more than us around here. You know, I'm gonna share a story if you don't mind. I'm <clears throat> get us a little off track, but it gets to your point of listening. Um, and it was and I don't know if I shared this on the radio or not, but it, I call it the water skiing story and it was my mom was moved to the lowest functioning unit in the nursing home. It was a really difficult day for me to go see her because she was still really socially engaged. And I was fearful that if she went to that unit where nobody really talks and, you know, that's how I perceived it as a family member, that there wasn't interaction, that that she would just, you know, life would end quickly for her because there would be nothing to fill her soul. And I remember they said stay away for 24 hours so she could kind of get used to the routine, which is really more for me than it is for her, I know, nowadays. And and I came into the nursing home, and I, and I ended up walking by, you know, where she used to sit at the front door in the high wing back chair and greet people, and most people didn't even know she was living there. They thought she was a guest because her social skills were so good and saw all her friends and the staff. And then I went up to the second floor where she had moved because she was starting to wander. And I saw all of her friends and staff there. And then I had to put in another code and go to this, now this final unit, basically. And I remember walking down the hall and hearing my mom's voice. And then I realized she was madder than a wet hen. And she's screaming profanity. Now, this is coming from a woman who's carrying a bar of soap in her mouth just to catch us kids as we were when we were younger. And she is gripping off like a truck driver. And I remember standing outside her door, bawling my eyes out. My stomach, I don't think my stomach has ever been in so much pain and in such a big knot. And I just had crocodile tears coming out of my eyes going and, and praying harder than I think I've ever prayed in my entire life. You know, help her understand, help, you know, help her remove this fear. And all that was going on behind that door in her room was there were two staff trying to get her up in a Hoyer list. And they were both so nice and upbeat. And it was a male and female staff. And they're like, hi, Dorothy, we're just here to get you up for lunch. You know, we need you to bend your knees and keep your arms straight. We're going to push the button and we're going to lift you and get you in your wheelchair and you're going to go have lunch with all your friends. And they were just ping-ponging that back and forth. And my mom is just ripping the new ones. And I'm, and I'm just standing outside this door going, this, this shouldn't be this difficult. Nobody should be this fearful. She's so scared. She doesn't understand this. There's got to be a way. And I just remember praying to myself over and over, help me help her, help them help her, help her understand, just help, you know. This this can't keep going on. This this isn't right. And I remember wiping my eyes and pushing open the door, and nobody even knew I came in because my mom is just screaming, and they didn't hear me come in, and they were focused on her. 
and I could barely see because my eyes were just so filled with water. And um, I wiped my eyes again, and I, I remember seeing my mom with these ropes around her wrist and this, like, seatbelt thing around her back, and she's sitting up in bed, but she's angled back, and her feet are off the floor, and she's just in a very uncomfortable position. And, and I just started praying again, and, and all of a sudden, I felt this arm go around my shoulder. And I hear my dad whisper, Lori, ask her to go water skiing. Just ask her to go water skiing. And I remember looking at the bed next to my mom, and she didn't have a roommate at the time, thinking, okay, that one's for me because I have totally lost it. My dead dad is talking to me. And, like, my mom is going to go water skiing. Right. <laughs> and then I, I listened. I really just shut up and listened. And it was amazing, and I thought, this can work. And so I walked up to the bed, and my mom is still spewing profanities at the staff. And I said with a real joyful <clears throat> voice, Mom, do you want to go water skiing? And she turned her head and looked at me and instantaneously went from a raving, wild, you know, feeling maniac to this big, beautiful smile and said, well, yeah. And I said, okay, then, Mom. I said, knees bent, arms straight, and I pointed to the staff, and I said, hit it. And I'll never forget him pushing this big red button <coughs> on the Hoyer list. And it started pulling my mom up. And wow. my mom's hands actually curled like they were going around a tow rope. Yeah. And she was smiling so brilliantly. And a staff, I remember, screamed out, you go, Dorothy. And my mom turned at her head, and she winked at him. And for months, that worked. And the reason it worked was because my dad taught all of us how to water ski. And the yeah. were knees bent, arms straight, hit it. And that is wonderful. That is so great. And so many times we just won't, you know, we'll get the answer, but we're not brave enough because it sounds crazy um, to listen. Or our mind is chattering too much that we just can't really hear the message. And I thought, you know what, I have nothing to lose. I, I, so what if somebody thinks I'm crazy? If this could work, it, it, it's worth it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in that moment, I mean, it was so powerful to me. And we were able to use that. The staff used that for months to get my mom up and to remove her fear. And so it, it changed my conversations with my mom. You know, I would go to visit and I'd say, you know, what, what have you been up to? It? And she would have this brilliant smile and say, oh, I've been water skiing three, four, five, three, four times already today. And so then we would have this whole conversation on, did she fall and did she drop one, did she spray, did she go barefoot, did she go off the dock? I mean, we had all our jargon, you know, our water skiing jargon that, mm -hmm. you know, again, wasn't um, a real-life conversation. You know, it didn't really happen, but it didn't make any difference. She was engaged in a fun conversation, and, and we were enjoying one another, and that's all that mattered. Sure. Sure. Oh, that, that's a beautiful story. Yeah, that listening um, can be can be difficult, I think. And again, for me, you know, one of the lessons has taught me to really 
just try to quiet your mind and and listen for the answers because there is comfort and there are there's so many things that will come to you if you're open um, to just viewing things in a different way and, and giving up that control and knowing that there is a higher source out there that knows a heck of a lot more than we do. Yeah. And for me as a daughter, that's, that's given me great, great comfort. The other thing, Joe, that I really liked in your book was that you had talked about identifying your own negative feelings and your positive feelings and trying to get people to appreciate both of them and pinpoint what they are or when do they occur and maybe some of the trigger points, which, again, I, I just think is is so highly needed because you can't appreciate something if you don't even know it exists. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, that goes back to uh, a, a lot of what we've been talking about here without uh, maybe labeling it is, uh, you know, just just – Honesty. I mean, if we're honest about uh, what we observe, if we're honest about how we feel, uh, if we're honest about uh, what's what's happening to our lives and what's happening to the life of um, you know mom or dad or whomever, uh, yeah, if, if we're just really honest about that. Um, we will get through this much better. Um, you know, I I hate to think that uh, I'm a resentful person. Uh, you know, resentment is negative, and it's uh, I guess you can look on it as a character flaw or something. I mean, you know, why? What's wrong with me? Why am I resentful? Uh, but I had to be honest about that. I I was, and and there were reasons for it. I you know one of the little stories I put in the book was, you know Penny and I just want to uh, because I've been able to work out of my house here. When we moved in here, took the master bedroom, turned it into I just had it totally redone into a very nice professional office. So it, it's a great place to work, and it's, it's really nice that I can work out of the house and don't have to get in all that traffic. But every now and then, you know, I want my water cooler time, typical office work. So I'll uh, say, come on, let's, let's go up and get a latte or something. And I'd go to my wife, and I'd want to say, let's go get a latte, and I knew I couldn't do that at this moment, you know, my moment, the moment of my choice. I couldn't do it because uh, she was dealing with her mom, and it was obviously a tough dealing. I mean, it was not one of these, oh, mom, do this, and so mom does it. You know, it was a hassle time for my wife. So, you know, she, I, I couldn't even bring up the idea, let's go get a latte. I mean, it would have been terrible. Uh, so... You know, I, I was kind of angry about the fact that I can't just, with my wife, go get a cup of coffee when I want. I mean, that, that made me a little mad and a little resentful. And I had to admit that. I, I had to admit it was more than not just getting a cup of coffee. It was resentment about not being able to get a cup of coffee at this moment. 
And then, you know, you start to think about that. Well, is, is that really, you know, a crisis in life that I can't get a cup of coffee now? No. It's just about me. I mean, I, I want to be in control of every aspect and every moment of my life. So, you know, if I, if I can't do that, then life is not good, and I can, I can resent it. So, you know, you, you, yeah, you do, you, you see these um, life moments that uh, change things, maybe have some changes thrust upon you, and you either deal with them or you die from them. I mean, I, I remember, and I think I wrote this somewhere in the book, um, about, you know, the resentment, the anger, uh, I want to go get my coffee, this kind of stuff, and you know, can't do that. And my my bottom line and my overall feeling was probably more resentment than anything else. And I, I summed it up in, I want my freedom back. I want my life back. I want my wife back. You know. Uh, uh, Penny and I happen to that we we're married 37 years. We still hold hands and all that crazy stuff. We're very much in love, and you know she's a very important person to me. And and uh, I would much rather go get a cup of coffee with her than just go get a cup of coffee by myself or any of my friends or anything like that. And and part of the resentment was hampering my freedom. Part of the resentment was changing my life. Part of the resentment was taking a lot of my wife's time that I thought should be for me uh, was now for her mother. And, yeah, there was a lot of resentment. Um, but fortunately, I was able to, at least at one point, eventually find out, okay, yeah, these things... These things are building resentment in me, and I need to do something about it. Yeah, it's 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 just so important to to realize those. One of the things that you know I love that you say is you know about fear. You know we've got to remove the fear, and we've got to acknowledge it first. I get so frustrated that so much of society is motivated by fear instead of acknowledging it, so we can remove it. You know, yes. and, and it plays on the guilt, and it plays on um, our anger, and it plays on our sense of loss or sense of hope. And I, I just I can't go there anymore. I won't. As an individual, I won't go there anymore. It's it, we're we're feeding fear power when we do that. Yeah. And I think we really have to as a as a world come together and say no more fear is okay you know anger is okay to acknowledge again because once we acknowledge it we can deal with it just like with with alzheimer's disease you know people go oh i'm scared what if i get it it's an early diagnosis well you know you can't even begin to fix or control or plan for something you're not aware of and right. that you've got your head buried in the sand. And mm-hmm. so I think early diagnosis is, is so important. And I think, you know, the earlier we can diagnose these feelings, 
within ourselves. And I'm not saying you need to go to a shrink or anything like that, but but the the sooner we as individuals can sit down and just be with our feelings and accept that, like you said, they're not good, they're not bad, they're not ugly, they just are part of us. And we have to learn how to live with them and how to control them, and there's nothing to be embarrassed about. Um, and, and as we dig, there's there's always a reason. Sure. And so many times people don't know the reason for their feelings. And we have to look look deeper to control that. So, well, I'm just having so much fun talking to you. I just, I just uh, could talk with you all day, Joe. You just uh, have such marvelous insights. I, I just feel blessed um, that that I ran across your book and that you were willing to come on the show because, again, um, your book is going to help a lot of people. Now, one of the things that you um, have kind of filtered throughout the book is some prayers which I just thought was really powerful, too. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a big church-going type person. I'm extremely spiritual, and I, um, you know, I have my affirmations and my prayers that I do, um, you know, for myself. But I just found them so powerful and so um, heartwarming. And they just gave me a sense of, Again, I'm not alone. No matter what it is I'm feeling, I'm not alone. And I think that's one of the biggest things that, you know, as a society, as a as a tribe, you know, in the world, that people are missing, you know, because there's there's such isolation. And we seem to still fall in this thing of what I refer to. I don't know if people remember the movie, The Stepford Lives, where everything had to be perfect. And, you know, to this day, I have some good friends who I know some things about them that they will never tell me. And, and you know, one is that a child is, of theirs got divorced. And, and it's like to not be able to share that with a good friend because the world has to think of them as perfect to me is so sad. And, you know, it's, it's this hidden fashion. So I, I think the more we can talk openly and honestly about what's really going on, that's the only way we're going to really build support and get help and make a difference. Because if we don't talk openly and honestly, nobody knows we need anything. And that's true. And then we're the only ones to blame. So, um, so is there anything else that you'd like to share with us? Well, the the only thing that uh, I would want to emphasize is uh, what I I said at the beginning. Um, there there is hope, and basically you just said this uh, in in different words, but I mean it is what you said. Uh, there's hope, and um, hope is going to be based on two things. Uh, well, we can say three things. Uh, it's going to be based on what you do, and it's going to be based on others, small o. I mean, there are people that will help you, and it's going to be based on, at least for me, other capital O. I mean, God. I mean, I, you know, that's just part of me. Uh, but th- there is hope, and 
you know, if if you take anything from this hour that Lori and I have been talking today, uh, please believe that uh, you need to get help. Uh, you uh, need to be good to yourself. And if you do, if you get help and if you are good to yourself, there's hope. There's just all kinds of hope. And uh, I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna read from the very end of the book. Uh, there's there's hope because life is not static. There's hope because you can decide your own attitudes. There's hope because you can choose to become a greater lover and servant. There's hope because each day you can choose how you will react to the realities of this one day. And there's hope because there are others who will help you, guide you, support you, as long as you're willing to ask. And there's hope because God's grace is generous and he willingly gives you as much of his grace as you want. I mean, there's hope. Hope you believe that. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, Joe. You know, one thing that you do talk about in your book, and I, I want to see if you wouldn't mind just touching on this, but you ask the question, what if I get Alzheimer's? How, oh, what, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Because that goes through everybody's mind. Well, well I, I, was, I was a little, uh, oh, kind of irreverent in, in treating that. Uh, but on the other hand, and I'm probably, probably accurate. Basically, what I said was, you know, if I get Alzheimer's, I'm probably for a while going to be frustrated. For a while, I know I'm going to be frustrated. I mean, I, I'm going to, I'm going to be really angry that I'm giving up my uh, dignity, my control of myself, all that sort of stuff. But I, I hope I'll get over that kind of quickly. And two ways, uh, you know, number one, once it becomes bad enough, I probably won't even know I have the disease, let alone anything else. But the other thing is I'm a, I'm a big beach fan, and you know, I was born and raised in California. That's probably why we used to go to the beach all the time. So I just say, look, you know, if I get really bad off, just pack me up, uh, bring me to the beach, sit me there, in the sun and turn up uh, the speakers that you bring out to the beach, you know, Beethoven and, you know, all this big bombastic great symphony music and every now and then turn it off so I can just listen to the waves and I'll sit there day and night for a hundred years and be happy. So, you know, just just take me and put me on the beach and leave me there. Um, it, it, it's... The truth is, if I if I do get it, um, I hope I'll have enough grace to deal with it uh, as as admirably as at this point I would want to deal with it. Uh, but on the other hand, I, you know, I, I can't worry about it. I can't know exactly how I'm going to be. Uh, uh, you know, maybe medicine will be such that uh, if I got Alzheimer's five years from now, they could totally cure it. Who knows? I mean, I, I, 
I don't know. There's so much unknown, um, but it's certainly not something to worry about. Uh, you can prepare for it uh, a little bit. Tell your kids you love them. Tell your kids and, and uh, all those that you love. You know, even if I start acting like a jerk, it's because of the disease. It's not me. I do love you, and I always will. And I think that's the most important thing. Good advice. Very good advice. I, I'm to try not to worry about that. I know a lot of people really spend a lot of time worrying about the what ifs. And again, this disease has taught me, you know, stop wasting your time on the what ifs. Deal right. with what is. And and um, move forward from there. Well, Joe, I, I can't, again, thank you enough for sharing your time, your expertise, your honesty, um, your heart and soul with us because it's it's just been a pleasure for me, as I'm sure it has been for our listeners as well. Can you tell people how to get a hold of you, and if they want to get your book, where they can where they can get that? Uh, sure. Uh, two things. If you want to get a hold of me, probably the easiest thing would be by email, and my email address is joe j o e at skill and marketing. That's my name and my company. One word s. K-I-L-L-I-N-M-A-R-K-E-T-I-N-G. Skillin ends with an N. Nancy, first marketing M, Mary. Joe at skillinmarketing.com. And as far as buying the book, if you would like to buy the book, you can buy it at Barnes & Noble. You can get it on Amazon. Now, every now and then, they list it as out of stock. Uh, But, you know, you, you just send them a contact us email and say you might be out of stock but I want the book get it for me uh, when can I expect delivery both Barnes & Noble and Amazon work that way and the fail safe is to go to the publisher the publisher is Tate Publishing T-A-T-E so if you went to their website and clicked on their bookstore and then searched my name, S-K-I-L-L-I-N, or the name of the book, Confessions of a Caregiver, uh, they'll send you the book. It's uh, their, their website is www.onewordtatepublishing, T-A-T-E-P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G.com. So if you go to www.tatepublishing.com slash bookstore, uh, you get the book. Wonderful. I have to ask you, um, how did you come up with the title? I, I just think it's a fabulous title. Ooh, I don't really know how I came up with the title. Um, um, Maybe you just listened. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, actually, you're probably right. I did. I, I, I did. I did have trouble with the picture on the uh, cover of the book. Uh, the publisher wanted to put a, a, you know, this old man on it. I figured, no. But unfortunately for you ladies, most Alzheimer's patients are female. Uh, so I said, no, it has to be a lady. So then he, you know, puts on this picture of a, you know, kind of attractive young lady. I said, no, yeah, that's not realistic. Come on, let's put on somebody that really looks um, old and diminishing. Somebody that might have Alzheimer's. So. Uh, that ended up being the picture that I chose because they couldn't seem to find a good one. And a couple of people have asked me, is that my mother-in-law? No, it is not my mother-in-law. Okay. But, but she did look like that. I mean, that that picture, I think, captures 
um, you know, the inside of the person that's pictured there. Uh-huh. Well, so, Lori, thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. Wonderful. I hope we stay in touch, Joe, because I uh, I just think you have so much to offer. Joe is also open to doing uh, speaking engagements, so if people are interested in contacting him, um, please do so for that. As you can tell from just listening today, he's just filled with wonderful information. So thank you again, Joe. I'd like okay. to ask, ask all of our listeners um, to help us spread the word about the show today because, again, I think it's just loaded with, with great information. So if you wouldn't mind tweeting us and liking us on your Facebook or putting it on your LinkedIn or emailing it or even uh, downloading um, the episode and shooting it out to your friends, that would be much appreciated because this isn't about Alzheimer's Speaks Radio so much as it is about helping those that need help out in the world today. Our next show, actually, I don't have scheduled yet, but I've got several great guests that I'm, I'm working with. So I'm sure we'll have a, at least one show next week. I'm talking with uh, somebody from Abe's Garden, which is a brand new facility that is going to be built that is just incredible um, in terms of the concept, and there's never been anything like it in the nation. I'm also talking with a couple of women who are caring for their their husbands because we really haven't had spouses on talking about what it's like to give care. And I think that that's just a really different angle in and of itself. And then I have a couple other authors, too, that have some wonderful insight. And then, of course, we've got a few people that I'm working with that have early onset. And if you happen to be listening and are somebody who you think has a story to tell, please contact me. I am always looking for more guests to have on the show. This is about spreading the word. It makes no difference where you live in the world because we just do this by phone or by Skype. And um, so it's just a matter of coordinating our time zones. And as you can tell, it's a very comfortable conversation, just like talking on the, on the phone with a friend. So please focus on the three simple things in the future from your memory chip that um, teaches us you know, to ask the questions of who we're caring for. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? And you can get a downloadable copy of that if you go to www.alzheimerspeaks.com. I want you to all enjoy the rest of your week and the weekend. And from Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, thank you again for so much for being part of our show. Talk to you all soon. Bye now. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.